John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 594.js0503, certificate number 52348, the Holy Prepuce. I think of you as a, uh, as a Bible scholar. That's correct. I am America's leading biblical scholar. Would you call yourself a, a, a Bible scholar? How, on a scale of one to ten, how well do you know the Bible? Um, I feel like I apparently I know the Bible better than a lot of these guys that keep getting on TV and saying hurricanes are caused by transgender bathrooms or whatever. Right. So you're saying there's nothing in the Bible about transgender bathrooms causing hurricanes? No. Yeah. Oh. No. It, what you're saying there is stuff about it. There's that stuff doesn't... about hurricanes. There's okay. stuff about transgender bathrooms. But okay. I mean, it's left to Pat Robertson to draw the connection. To make the connection. Uh, so you, but, but I feel like I'm pretty comfortable with with my Bible, mostly from um, having attended a Lutheran slash Methodist international school in Korea as a kid for years. We had mandatory Bible study every day in elementary school and uh, some in high school as well. But you're an elder in your church. Yes. Does that come into play? Does your knowledge of the Bible uh, give you a, a sort of... Um, I mean, I, it, I teach Sunday school. So you need to know the Bible it, for that. It really helps. Except only like four or five stories, right? It's always the same story. Uh, you need to know a little bit more than the the know-it-alls in the class. <laughs> it's like outrunning a bear. Uh-huh. You, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You don't have but to know the Bible better than Jesus. You just have to know the Bible better than... Um, Some ten-year-old Sue Ann in the front row. Now, what do, at what age does a kid graduate out of Bible study and go into the main congregation? Oh, I actually teach a Sunday school class for adults. This is the adult oh, class. Oh, so it, you, so you have to be smarter than the average bear. There's an hour of uh, there's an hour of like congregational service, and then there's uh, an hour of of scripture study w- where there's a uh, classes for youths, but also an adult class. Interesting. So how often does somebody take that class just because they want to be the expert? <laughs> right? There's always somebody in a in an adult education class who's like That's very perceptive. Who, who wants to actually the teacher. Yes. There are generally one or two of those, generally an older gentleman, you know, coming from a generation <laughs> Whoa, what where a surprise. coming from a generation where the 
expertise of a of a of a white man would not be challenged in that setting. Right. It's so common there's actually a word for it in Latter-day Saint parlance that I did not know was not a dictionary word until I was an adult. What is the word? Somebody is always the scriptorian of their congregation, uh, meaning kind of the self-appointed scripture expert who knows all the who can raise his hand and say all the things. Well, actually, this verse when it says the Philistines here, it's got to be referring to the Gileadites because in Second Kings chapter, 11, and for the, <laughs> the scriptorian, I thought for decades of my life I thought the scriptorian was an actual because it sounds pretty cool. Sure, the scriptorian it, guard. It's, <laughs> it does sound like it might be some, maybe like a TBS miniseries where uh, some um, kind of low budget Indiana Jones thing with some rare books collector <laughs> who who gets into. Crazy adventures. Oh, I thought it, I thought you were going to say that it's starring Denzel and he just like avenges people who don't. <laughs> he, he avenges bad script, scriptural quotations. That's bad scripture interpretation. <laughs> yeah, and he leaves the correct exegesis on a on a little uh, carved in a stone at the site. Yeah, that would be pretty in good. A smoking hole. Uh, it, it turns out there is no such word as scriptorian. It's just, it's purely an invention of Latter Day Saints to describe the phenomenon of. The, guy, the old guy in the ward that won't shut up. <laughs> so now, are you considered the scriptorian of your congregation? I, I hope not. Oh, it's a, not it has a bad con- con- connotation. But it, it does to me. I think yeah. not to the not to the people who would appropriate it. Yeah, because right. generally it's not the best biblical commentary you get from the scriptorian. It's not like it doesn't come from like. Uh, Majoring in biblical scholarship at a Jesuit college, right? I mean, it's gonna it's gonna lag because his knowledge is gonna come from what he heard authorities or pastors saying when he read a book in nineteen. And and who knows if that was some weird the apocalypse is coming paperback that he read, and you know, so it's it's not gonna be cutting edge scholarship. <laughs> Got it. It's gonna be a very traditionalist view of the Bible, and. Uh, you know, I I tend to try to you know if I'm teaching a lesson and I know I'm going to have to come against come up against something like this, you know, like when was Isaiah written or uh, did the same author write all five books of the Torah? Where I know the classes idea might come into conflict with where, given my vague understanding, where actual biblical commentary is because this is not my field. Yeah, I'm just doing this once a week as a volunteer. Right. Uh, hey, I'm just this, a volunteer here. Hey, this is way above my pay grade, sir. Let's let's for a moment accept what you say about the Gileadites. I'm I'm cool with that. But part of what you do is biblical scholarship, not just talking about it in a devotional in a context. Devotional context. You kind of have to. Oh, I mean, for a couple reasons. One, I think there are some churches in America that would disagree. <laughs> in my opinion, you have to because. Generally, the devotional context needs to be contextualized. I'm not a big fan of people who who only use scripture for I, I, what's called generally called proof texting. Like I have a I have a devotional idea in mind that I want to convey. I'm going to find a verse that conveys that idea that says I don't I, have to make birthday cakes for gay couples. Exactly, and now I'm going to wield it. Right, you know, and uh, it really. Comes up. I mean, I don't know if I have an ideological issue with it so much as I do a literary issue with it. I mean, you really, if you're looking at an ancient text, you got to consider it as an ancient text. What did the writer mean? Why did he or she write it? Why did they include this point of view and not that one? You know, which details are are, are emphasized versus omitted? I mean, it's really the most interesting way to read it. I think because it actually keeps the interest of the of the reader or the class right. engaged if you do it right. 
because it's a detective story and it's a f- archaeology and right, it's fun. Right, uh, it, there's becomes mystery to it. If you're at your Sunday school class for certainty, I'm not sure you're uh, my kind of right Christian. You're probably not at a Seattle congregation. <laughs> there's certainly that. Yeah, like if you were to try to teach by this method in uh, at a you know a Baptist church in suburban Knoxville, Tennessee, or a Mormon church in Orem, Utah, um, I guess you might get some pushback to treating right. the scripture as literature and seeing what can be gained or, or lost by that approach. But, well, it's just exactly the same. I, I tried to teach a, a class that went back through Judas Priest lyrics trying to find all the evidence uh, that they were encouraging kids to commit suicide, but I, I tried to teach it in Manchester, England. And the audience was not receptive. Is it difficult to? It must be difficult even to find people for such a class. Oh no, people love a Judas Priest class in Manchester. They show up, but there's every one of them is a scriptorian. You know, in Manchester, you see a bunch of those signs, Judas Priest class offered, but all the little, <laughs> the fringe of little tabs at the bottom is all ripped off. You know, exactly. As soon as one of those goes up, it just gets pounced on. But there's always some guy that's like electric eye in the sky. <laughs> um. So where do you stand? Uh, I mean, sorry. Where where does your congregation stand on Mary Magdalene? Is she <laughs> is she um, is she a sinner? Is she? Uh, and that's also a Judas Priest lyric. Um, sinner. That's can a word be a lyric? <laughs> yeah, I guess if you say it like <laughs> that, Judas Priest with his voice. Yes, one word. Um, but you know, there's a lot of controversy uh, within the biblical scholarship about whether the traditional Western idea of Mary Magdalene as a as a fallen woman is is uh, is not supported it by the by the Bible. Is that right? I'm not sure this has ever come up in my Sunday school class. I'd have to maybe you know show up at a at a Mormon pancake breakfast and pull the crowd. <laughs> Can I come? <laughs> <laughs> you just want free pancakes. But I know you have personal feelings about it because you and I talk about Mary Magdalene all the time. Yeah, we have a little um, a Bible study group. We do. We meet every every morning, an hour before we do omnibus. We meet. <laughs> we do, and we uh, and, we get, I, and we get some inspiring word from Scripture. Yeah, and I'm I'm always talking about Mary Magdalene as a fallen woman, and you're like, actually, I feel like I know I mostly know this from a like trivia nerd point of view, and not from a uh, theological <laughs> point of view. How- how how big a difference is there between a trivia nerd and a Bible scholar? I would say today there's quite a big gap in America between between self-appointed uh, Bible believers I guess that's and right. trivia people. I'm thinking of the 18th century. The idea that Mary Magdalene is the is of a or the fallen woman who appears in some of the stories in the gospels I believe is not biblical. Right. That there, there is a Mary Magdalene who follows Christ. Let's see. I think she sees him at the tomb uh, when he's resurrected. Am I right? Yes. I believe that's her. She's present at the crucifixion. Right. There's some anointing happening. <laughs> but the story of the uh, woman taken in sin where Jesus says, cast not the first stone, that woman's never named. Like oh, She doesn't have a name. That's not... I mean, she does, but not right. in the story. She's um, called Mary at some point. There is a story about a woman who, uh, a, a sinner who appears to Jesus and, and uh, washes his feet right. and, pri- and uh, anoints his feet, as you say, in kind of costly oils, scandalizing the dinner crowd. That will figure in our story later. Uh, and, and there is, I think in John, that woman is called Mary. In Luke, she's called nothing. 
nowhere is it implied that she's Mary Magdalene or Mary of Bethany or there's there's a couple Marys who are who are a, a count among Jesus's disciples. But the you know this this account is two thousand years old and it's not super good on the Bechdel test. You know, female, yeah. the female point of view in the Gospels is a little lacking. Well, what's also interesting, of course, is that in the translation <laughs> of some of these texts from the Hebrew to the Greek to the um, to the hip bone to the neck bone to the Elizabethan English to the to the hip modern English in which you and I read scripture. <laughs> there's a lot. That's right. My extreme teen Bible sitting right here. Uh, there's blessed a, are the blessed are the meek for they are on fleek for they are rad. You need a newer. You need a newer no. The, my extreme team Bible is from 1990. Okay, perfect. Uh, you know, there's a lot of euphemism in the original Hebrew and Greek. Like, for instance, um, anointing the feet. Uh, there are there's some scholarship that that is a euphemism, like a sexual euphemism. Yeah. Oh, well, no, oh. And that often, well, no, I mean, didn't Jesus is at a dinner at this point with some Pharisees. I mean, no wonder they'd be scandalized. Tell you what, call it, call up Mistress Matisse again, I second f- episode in a row. I feel like in this case, I don't know if I would buy that. Well, and that's exactly right. There, uh, within the scholarship, there are um, there are people that say sometimes a foot is just a foot, uh, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but other times um, anointing feet is euphemistic for something happening slightly higher. Anytime in the Bible the thigh is mentioned, right? it is sometimes a it's thigh. The, sometimes it's the generative organs. That's right. Sometimes it is a, a, a woman's uh, a delicate flower. I mean, even the even the biblical knowledge, the Old Testament discussion of sexual relations often refers to how well you know somebody, which is the ultimate euphemism. Mm-hmm. He knew his wife. Okay. Well, yeah, so did I, but... <laughs> no, hopefully not. Apparently not. Not the same way. Well, a lot of uh, a lot of the supporting documentation around the Bible we call um, well. There, there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it in the Bible that was written contemporaneously with the books of the Bible. That taken as a whole, we call the apocrypha. Many books of the Bible that were determined either to be duplicative or flawed or false. Um, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, many of these only discovered in modern or or semi-modern times. Some of them are old enough that they're deuterocanonical, which means some Bibles have them and some Bibles don't. Right, but that's only uh, you know Hebrew Bible era stuff. I don't know these. I don't know the the New Testament era these Christian writings well, but um, well, and and interestingly, a lot of them. Although not included in the Bible when the you know the New Testament when it was finally codified at the Council of Bible, Council of Bible, it was called famously. It was held the, in the city of Bible, <laughs> Council North of Bible. Carolina. Uh-huh. Uh, but a lot of the a lot of the stuff in them made their way into the Quran, stories mm. that were still kind of floating around. In um, well, it's kind of a bummer for the Quran that it's outtakes. Well, it's like I, it's like the uh, posthumous Tupac record of of holy books. A lot of them are hot takes rather than outtakes. Oh, it's the good stuff. Um, well, because you know the divinity of Christ and 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 uh, the divine touch that Mary, his mother, experienced. You know, all of that also figures into Islam. Right. Um, but they're not. You know the the uh, the Quranic scholars weren't as 
Um, They're not interested in Jesus as the Son of God. No, and not interested in what they have to say about it in Trent or or Constantinople 600 years later. Right, even very basic ideas about the nature of God, the nature of Christ, his humanity, his divinity. You know, these were all decided in, as you say, councils centuries later. There was a lot of diversity of opinion right. uh, in the immediate years and even centuries following. And even within Christianity, right? Because the um, Eastern Orthodox and Eastern churches have a lot of different interpretations. Because and taller hats. They do have taller hats. Their their churches are much, much more fragrant. Amazing, amazing smelling churches. But also like hard, sometimes hard to breathe. Very, but you know, the smoke all goes up. Incense smells so good at first. It does. That first breath of incense, you're like, wow, like this smells great. And then the second and third, you're like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to smell this. This much of this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's cells in my brain that can handle this. The first time I walked into an Eastern Orthodox church, I was like, whoa, I'm not in Presbyteria anymore. Um, But then, yeah, it's it's very much like being in a hippie house. They embraced your beard, I'm sure. (coughs) Uh, But... You know, a lot of the a lot of the schisms that happened between the Eastern Western Church happened before the New Testament was officially decided upon, and so there are, you know, there are uh, doctrines held one place that aren't that aren't another, mm-hmm. and and stories from these apocrypha, you know, they get they get translated and mixed. A lot of the books that that are that have been discovered over the centuries uh, archaeologically you'll find a version of a text that has one extra sentence or one fewer sentence. And at, at one level, you're trying to find the earliest text to see which is the, can- the canon. Um, but the, uh, well, I shouldn't say the canon cause that's decided upon, but like archeologically, like, is this the earliest version of this story or is it just somebody's version of it? somebody's telling the story and they forgot that part. Once again, fanfic screws everything up. <laughs> That's right. Maybe some guy just added a sentence. But there uh, there were books at the time, at the time that, that, uh, that some of the later books of the New Testament were being written, there were books that really uh, covered the childhood of Jesus. Yeah, they often, they often remind me of um, Superboy comics. Yes. Like, we know when he's an adult, he's going to do these amazing feats, but what do you think happened near his boyhood home in Smallville, or in this case, Nazareth? Like, I bet he was, bet he had a super pet, I bet he had uh, a super school. It's one of the things that, that you know, as a, as a casual child of a Christian universe, which is the story, which is the title of my autobiography. You're ca- a CCCU. <laughs> casual child of the Christian universe. You know, you do. You read the stories, or you hear secondhand the stories, or you read the comic book, for the Archie comic about the stories, and you do wonder, like, well, what was what was Jesus like at ten? What was Jesus like at six? Like, if he's turning water into wine when he's in his twenties, you got to assume that when he was ten. And my daughter was telling me a story the other day about how she and her uh, little group of girls are. She she. She doesn't say that they are witches, but that they're writing a story about witches. That they that their her little group of friends are the stars of the story. Got it. She's summoning Satan. Go and on. she said that 
you know, witches past the age of 10 are capable of hand magic, but before the age of 10, they have to use wand magic. This sounds like a euphemism too. It does, doesn't it? Right. Is this true? Wand magic? I'd never heard of it. I, I, and I can't tell whether she read some book, some apocrypha and she was like, oh no, everybody under 10, you have to use a wand. It's, you only graduate to using, to doing hand magic. And I was like, hand magic is a great record title too. I don't, I'm not in favor of any hand magic going on hand magic. in America's middle or high schools. You can do hand magic. Boop, boo, boo. I'm against hand magic. I'm feeling really pleased with myself today, John, because I remembered to cancel a TV channel during the seven-day free trial period. Wow, how did you even manage to do it? You, you watched TV for a couple of days and you were like, this is not for me? I watched the one movie I wanted to see on this channel and then I had to set a little notify update on my phone to remind me to cancel the damn thing before it became $5.99 a month. I've been paying for an app for a year and I have never used it once. And every week I say, oh, I got to cancel that thing. And I still haven't done it. That's why they want you to sign up for those things. Yeah. Because they think you'll forget to unsubscribe. And even though you don't use the surface, they'll just keep siphoning money off you for months to come. Yeah, they hope it they hope it never goes away, right? You forget about it. We want to recommend to you Truebill. If you were to download Truebill, it would manage all your subscriptions for you. It'll figure out what stuff you're not using but you're still paying for, which ones you forgot about. The average Truebill user saves about $720 a year. You know, not everybody is as circumspect as you and I are about subscribing to things, right? People, I think, in the contemporary economy recognize that subscriptions are how you get the things that you want, but they also are susceptible to a lot of things that they don't want to pay for anymore. And and companies specifically make it hard to cancel, you know? So you've got to know where on the site to do it. Here's all the hoops you have to jump through. Truebill will do that automatically for you. That's why I still get Time Magazine. Peace of mind. They have over 2 million users and have collectively saved them over $100 million. So how do I use Truebill? It's easy, John. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today by going to truebill.com slash omnibus. So you're saying if I go to truebill.com slash omnibus, it could save me thousands a year? That's right. Truebill.com slash omnibus. There are gospels um, that did not get included in the Bible that uh, that talk about Jesus as a boy. There's like a 30-year gap of his life missing. Yeah. Tons of details on his uh, pre-birth. He gets, right. he gets an origin story in Luke. Then it's like, uh, and he grew up. 30 years later. Then title card, 30 years later. 30 years later. Uh, and then, then there's a record scratch. And then 30-year-old Jesus goes, how did I get here? He's walking out of a carpenter shop with a bindle over his well, back. And, the, and in the background, big explosions. Yep, that was me. Big explosions? Yeah. What did he do to leave that carpenter well, shop, I'm John? I'm telling you what, some of these early books have a lot of it, uh, adventures I've in them. I've read the Gospel of John, but this is the Gospel of John McLean. This Am is I right? The infancy Gospel of Thomas uh, talks about uh, Jesus turning... He would make little birds out of clay, and his his little childhood friends would make clay birds, and then he would turn them into real birds. Uh, Jesus, in these early stories... So he he already has his powers. He's got powers. This is not a post-crisis Superman. And he does things like kill other kids who... who treat him badly. Just like young Lex Luthor in Smallville. That's right. There were, there were a couple of people that questioned, or, you know, that, that like got into a dispute with his parents and he blinded them. See, this seems like it's not really, uh, it's not super consistent with his 
later behavior toward blind people, which is unblinding them. Right. And even in these stories uh, as a child, when he realizes the error of his ways, that he's using his powers for for ill, he then unblinds the people he blinded. So these gospels are okay with a kind of a fallible Jesus who's got a lot of the powers of divinity, but like a superhero origin story, is learning to control them. It's part of the, part of the, uh, the early kind of confusion of Christianity you want to tell the story of Jesus as a man, right? As a human, and also divine. He's, he's a less interesting protagonist if he's not. I mean, Luke chapter 2 tells us, you know, the one sentence we get about his upbringing is that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Right. Which definitely leaves the door open for he, he originally... Wasn't as grown. Wasn't a great... Jesus. He was a personal Jesus. He was a he was his own personal Jesus. Uh, one of his early miracles was that uh, uh, that he broke all the water vessels, but he was still able to carry water in a cloth. Huh? Am I right? Imagine going to a stage magician <laughs> show, and the big finale is the guy carries water in a cloth. How did that not make it into the Bible? That's I like the, that's like the best miracle they can imagine in. Uh, <laughs> In this ancient part of the world, yeah, it's there. Are, some of these miracles seem a little bit less like, "Whoa, no way!" Well, you want him to do lesser miracles. You want him to be building to the the big stuff, right? But it's interesting that they're theologically okay with him actually, you know, striking out in in anger or revenge. You know, he's growing in wisdom and stature. They're okay with him actually doing unwise things. Yeah, and I, you know, you have to assume their the the gospel, the infancy gospel of Thomas, which then, you know, became part of um part of what's known as the Arabic infancy gospel because a lot of these stories hmm. were uh were not declared to be what what would you say um um heretical yeah within the Arabic context. And so they were preserved in in later documents because he's like a, to them he's just he's a young prophet you right know, it's, it's not blasphemous and so for him to be five six years old and find that he can turn clay birds into real birds why wouldn't he blind his his father's you know the guy coming and shaking a rattle at his dad or other kids why wouldn't he kill them. Of course you would. <laughs> I love the idea of Mary and Joseph being like Pa Kent in the Superman movie, being like, "Son, you know you can't use your powers on the football field. It's just not. It's just not fair." Uh, but within these stories, there are also a lot of other. I guess what you know, what are apocryphal stories about Jesus' family life? One of the original versions of um, of the story of. Jesus' mother, the original Mary, Mary number one. The OG Mary. That Mary herself was miraculously born. This is still a Catholic dogma. Yeah. She was immaculately conceived without sin in a way that nobody else had been. But that she remained a virgin her entire life, that she and Joseph never consummated their relationship. That's often why Joseph in Catholic art or medieval Catholic art is often depicted as an older gentleman, mm -hmm. that, she, that she married an old guy with no in interest in that part of marriage. But, you know, some of the stories are that he was an older guy who had earlier children. Mm, that's Hence, because Jesus' siblings are referred to in the Bible, right? Right. But in, these, in some of these documents that made it over 
you know, into other traditions. Um, Joseph is also a perpetual virgin. <laughs> I feel uh, like it's okay to say the Virgin Mary, like, at the time of her best work, you know, peak period. Right. Peak period Mary is a virgin, but, you know, her you know, her later years— you know, different genre. Yeah, different. It's the story. The story changes. I mean, after that's you, not the lineup that gets in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but <laughs> you know, she can still be the Virgin Mary. She doesn't have to stay the Virgin Virgin Mary. But like the Gospel of James talks about that when Mary, when the Virgin Mary was a little girl, that she was um, she was fed by angels, um, that she knew she was going to be the vessel of the Christ. That seems um, a little bit at odds when an angel comes to her decades later to say, Guess you're, you're going to be the vessel of the Christ. She right. doesn't say, well, of course, that's what the birds told <laughs> we, me. You know, we know each other already. Like <laughs> uh, Gabriel. <laughs> hello. We've been introduced like six times. <laughs> it's like me meeting Ben Gibbard. But um, one of the other kind of big uh, questions in the early uh, or controversies, I guess, was um, in the original version of Jesus's life, of course, Jesus was a Jewish boy, a devout. Jewish boy, and would have been circumcised on the eighth day, uh, which in our contemporary calendars is New Year's Day. Um, <laughs> oh, right. Right? <laughs> what a bummer of a New Year's to have a moil come over. He doesn't want to be working on New Year's Day. Um, but in the uh, in the Bible as we know it, there's no reference to um, Jesus's foreskin. I, and I've never thought of that as an omission, honestly. But of course, it would be an, it would be an odd reader who reads through the Bible and thinks this should be more about the foreskin. Where's the whatever happened to I, the foreskin? I kind of thought this was going to be about the foreskin. But in fact, there are uh, kind of a, a few aspects of Jesus's circumcision that are relevant. The first one being that it's the first time Jesus sheds blood. Uh, blood Jesus Jesus shedding blood figures pretty prominently in his later story. It does. And this is Jesus um, proving his humanity. Because he doesn't get any, uh, he doesn't get like a, a MMR shot at birth or anything. Nope. Nope. This is, this is his first like. Um, so, so do we just, uh, do we infer that he is circumcised from what we know to be the traditions of the period? Or is there, in the Gospels, is there some hint that he's circumcised? Well, in the Gospel of Thomas, the whole story is told. Oh, I see. This is a, a in a apocryphal gospel. Yeah, um, but also in the story, I'm looking in Luke chapter one. John the Baptist's circumcision is explicitly referred to Jesus's cousin. Right. So we know that the family was uh, was were eight day circumcisers. Right. We're maintaining the uh, the the honorable tradition. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that kind of factors into it is that Jesus's foreskin, when Jesus ascends to heaven uh, at the end of his his. Uh, his brief time on earth. His mortal sojourn. His foreskin left behind would be the only physical part of Jesus that didn't join him in space. Interesting. I mean, I guess we could suppose if we, you know, with modern DNA information, we could assume there were some, you know, beard hairs on a, on a camel blanket somewhere. Right. If you were interested in, in cloning Jesus. Huh? Right. If you were right in a, I, in a modern sense, I've you'd never think, thought of a Jurassic Park. <laughs> it's one of these Christian amusement creationist amusement parks, but instead of bringing back dinosaurs, they want to clone Jesus. Yeah, he'd be leaving some lip prints on some water cloths, presumably, right? Or um, but this fingerprints is for, and, on stuff. And this is for an audience that is hungry for such things, right? You know, the 
all these little relics, shards of the true cross, something that even he touched or, uh, you know, famously the Shroud of Turin, which would have a, a physical presence of his body. But yeah, none of those would have actual Christian cells. Right. The way a, a foreskin would. Um, right. And, and, and we're assuming the foreskin doesn't just disappear in the moment of his death or resurrection or ascension, which, so, which is a theological possibility. All of the relic stuff didn't really start taking off until, um, until the time of Charlemagne. Um, there was a thousand year gap. Are you blaming Charlemagne for this? Charlemagne. <laughs> Big collector. Charlemagne actually has a lot to account for in this story. But in the original infancy gospels, um, the story is told that Jesus is for Jesus is is, um, is circumcised, and that his foreskin is collected by an old Hebrew woman, as described, and she takes the holy foreskin and puts it in an alabaster box. Which what, are the, is, what are the odds that she would have an alabaster box? Well, not only that, but the alabaster box is full of a precious oil called spikenard. Which is a um, spikenard is a is an essential oil derived from honeysuckle, and she had this because you know think about all the frankincenses and myrrhs that are there. Um, she had this this box, and she collected the foreskin in the in the box of honeysuckle oil, and kept it. Gave it to her son, who was a pharmacist. My understanding of modern tradition is that you would bury the foreskin. But apparently... Buried in honeysuckle oil, in this case. No, she recognized that this was did, the holy she, foreskin. Did she grave rob the holy foreskin? No, she was there. She was there in some capacity. But think how... Think what a... I'm just trying to imagine if she just kind of, you know, sidles over to the table afterwards and yoinks it? Or does she have any kind of status that where she would be chosen as, hey, would you... We need somebody to hold on to the foreskin. The Gospels of Jesus' infancy are silent on the question of what exactly her role was, except that... Because not a good guest. She's there as the she's there as the uh, as the old Hebrew woman of the story. So she's probably she probably has some role. Although she's the, an elder, typically but, the the person the shul is not a woman. Yeah, the woman would not have a lot of status in this. But society. she would be there. She's there with the box, and I bet everybody else is consumed with other questions. Maybe she's had a box of the right size. She's like, hey, hey did anybody bring an alabaster box to this to this bris? I've got one. And she's got, I brought this one. Is this the right size? So she gives it to her it's, son. It's, it's, by the way, it's bad manners at a party. To what? To take the foreskin. Oh, I see what you're saying. At a foreskin party? <laughs> at any party. It's good manners to come to a party with an alabaster box full of oil. For sure. Right. For sure. Like, you know, you and I know that. Yeah, sure. Miss Matters is always saying, <laughs> if I come over to somebody's house for dinner, I bring my little alabaster box of spikenard, but... But, you know, you shouldn't. I, I, I've I guess I've taken conditioner from a hotel, but I would feel pretty guilty about leaving any party with any part of the host's penis. What, what we'll find is that stealing the uh, foreskin of Jesus's penis is not just, it doesn't happen just once. It's not just this first woman who, who appears to have some, she does it and nobody nobody's like, hey, wait a minute, where'd the foreskin go? She's like the old knight in uh, the third Indiana Jones movie. She's right. her job somehow right. is to be the immortal guardian of the force. You have chosen wisely. You have chosen foreskin. Um, she gives it to her son and she says, Hey, look, don't sell this box with a foreskin in it because, uh, don't even sell it for 300 shekels. It's specific about the price. 
Uh, it doesn't say like at 400 shekels, go ahead. But here's a price you shouldn't take. Yeah. That does kind of imply that there is a price that you should take. She doesn't, it's not even clear whether she tells him what's in it. She just says, look, don't, this is a precious box, more precious than you know. I feel like in typical understanding of, uh, of Jesus's upbringing, the neighbors were not all aware, hey, this guy's going to be Jesus. There are a lot of birds around here that didn't used to be here. (laughs) And it does seem like in this story, everyone is well aware, has the, um, what the, uh, anachronistic idea hey this is going to be jesus's foreskin someday so let's um let's put this in spike nard well again that's one of those weird aspects of the story like at jesus's birth everybody there seems to get what's going on except for the landlord angels are filling everybody in here it is right but then angels and stars does that continue throughout his childhood Well, that's the thing they kind of bail a neighbor moves into the house next door and angels immediately appear they're like good news i bring you good tidings your neighbor is going to be jesus no they show up and they say look do not piss off the Christ's next door, uh, because they will blind you. So do you actually think their last name was Christ? <laughs> the, the Christ's. No, it's uh, Joseph of uh, Aramea, right? No, it's a different guy. It's Joseph of uh, Joseph of the, of the uh, Christ Joseph. Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, yeah, everybody's last name then was of Nazareth in this town, so it doesn't really help. Who just moved in next door? The of Nazareth. Yes, of Nazareth. Well, it was, it was the of Capernaums, but now they're the of Nazareth's. What's kind of interesting about this story is that eventually the alabaster box full of spikenard and one foreskin. One, parentheses, one foreskin. Ends up in the hands of Mary, the sinner. What? Who gets the box, unclear whether buys or is given by the druggists, by the son of the old Hebrew woman, and it is precisely that spikenard she uses to anoint Jesus. So it's more like I have a special family connection. I have this magic spikenard. Is it is the idea that it's good for it's healthy for Jesus in some way to well, get to get washed in his own um, foreskin spikenard? You know, this happens in the Bible um, a surprising amount of time. People getting washed in spikenard foreskin. Well, spikenard? if you if you uh, if you recall. So not to not to be uh, to be the um, the scriptorian here. You're such a scriptorian, John. But if you uh, remember from Exodus, Zipporah uh, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses's feet with it, so that Moses would leave Zipporah's son alone. There are the, Moses was thinking of killing his own son. Yeah, and but he was in he was engorged with uh, the power of. God and like he was zapping people right and left, zapping people right and left, like the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there's a the the um, the foreskin. There, there's an example of uh, of uh, of a gift of a hundred foreskins. Yeah, that's David uh, who wants to marry the king's daughter, and the king doesn't want it to happen. So he's like, "Sure, you just got to give me a hundred Philistine foreskins." There you go. But you don't want to tell a guy like David that. David just goes out and immediately. <laughs> Kills 200 Philistines and cuts off their forces. He doubles the, the dowry. And presents it. And presents it to Saul. Like, here you go, Saul. Here you go. Did you, you, were, you were looking for foreskins? I mean, it's not an anointing so much, but I guess it does end with somebody getting foreskin, bloody foreskins as a gift. The, you know, the foreskin as a um, uh, totem, but also the anointing, the, the blood as a... As an anointer, right, um, 
combined here in this instance, I mean, in, in the Bible as we know, or the Bible we know, the Bible you know, that I've seen in, uh, in motels, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus has anointed his, both his head and his feet with precious oil by Mary. Yeah, there's, there's stories of, yeah. Mary Magdalene, that is the story we end up with, right? This but is, but it's not really Mary. Magdalene. It's not really Mary Magdalene. This is this is the earlier Mary who then, um, and then she cleans off the oil with her hair, which is very common even now. Um, when you put oil on somebody's feet, feet. Um, My hair's never been long enough to pull that off. You wipe then wipe it up your, with your hair. But but in this apocrypha that that made it into the Arab culture, the Arab version of the story, mm-hmm. uh, the. The the oil is made the more precious by Jesus's foreskin. Wow! So it, yeah. it, 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 very early we have stories of it having supernatural power. Yes, and um, the foreskin then disappears, as as foreskins do, as you would hope it would. Uh, a, a, a much later, like a seventeenth century biblical scholar by the name of Leo Alatius. Uh, speculated that when Jesus ascended to heaven, his foreskin also went with him. Did it go back to his body and then go up with him, or does it ascend in parallel at the same speed from wherever it was on earth? It ascended in parallel. Hmm. And that, that must have surprised the heck out of people who were standing next to the alabaster box. I know. Well, that was probably on a shelf or in somebody's closet. Like, whoa, what's that sound? Was the, the, was, door, they, was the box <laughs> rattling <laughs> around <laughs> until they, then, they open it? Wow. But according to uh, uh, Leo Alatius, <laughs> the foreskin then, having ascended parallel with Jesus, became one of the rings of Saturn. See, like modern science just doesn't understand a lot of this kind mm-hmm. of stuff mm-hmm. about what causes hurricanes or the rings of Saturn. That does not figure in uh, in like canonical Christian doctrine. The Catholic Church does not see, well, certainly does not look at Saturn and see a ring of foreskins. Yeah, it would. A I mean, ring there, of fire. There's certainly a, a, some scientific problems there. The size, for example, like we now know the ring of Saturn to be larger than a human foreskin. Sure, sure. Even, Which maybe they wouldn't have known. Maybe Leo uh, Leo wouldn't have known that. He, Although he by may, then he thought the planet of Saturn was a tiny little foreskin-sized planet <laughs> that was very close <laughs> to him. That's why it looked so small. But uh, but. The, within the within the Western Catholic tradition, the foreskin did not ascend simultaneously to heaven. It was the last part of Jesus left on earth. It hadn't really been thought of very much in the intervening 800 years. Well, because the they, uh, Christian believers didn't think of— Stopped thinking about it. They stopped thinking about Judaism, you right. know? Like, uh, very early in the New Testament, the apostles decide they don't have to—well, they argue about it, but they eventually decide you don't have to circumcise new converts. That's and, not going to be a Christian thing. And part of that argument included arguing whether or not Christ had actually been circumcised. In, in, interesting. Yeah, so there were there was a school of thought that said, you know, the the— the body of Christ is um, sacred, and so no part of it should have been cloven. Um, yeah, there is a tradition of how uh, of of how um, I think there's a tradition about uh, someone being stopped before they can break any of Christ's bones on the cross, and the idea is that there's some theological basis for that. That being divine as he was, 
there would be no way to, you know, it would be blasphemous or maybe impossible to break his bones. But we know he can, we know he can be pierced and bleed. So right. you'd, you'd think that circumcision would be on the table. And all of this was kind of, you know, this was the stuff that really occupied the Sunday school arguments. Of Monks could argue about this for weeks. 180 AD. They had plenty of free time. But it wasn't until the year 800 when Charlemagne um, was given as a gift to commemorate his Charlemanitude. That was the year he was crowned uh -huh. Roman Emperor. Um, given a gift by uh, no less a person, given a gift by Empress Irene of Athens, who was the uh, the woman who called this this you don't talk about as much, but she actually called the Second Council of Nicaea in seven eighty seven. That's like Woodstock ninety nine. It right? was. <laughs> it was. Nobody cares about the Second Council of Nicaea. First Council of Nicaea, pretty important in this story. Second Council of Nicaea, just kind of following. It's up. kind of the more American graffiti of uh, of Councils of Nicaea. Yeah, it was the one that that uh, that featured. Blink-182. Ken, how's your hair? My hair feels great, It's actually. It's pretty full and and, uh, and fluffy. I don't want to brag. They stopped having to fill in the back of my head. With uh, spray foam? Yeah, there's kind of, there's like a, th you know, because like harsh TV lights really yeah. make people look balder than they are. Sometimes they have been filling in the back of my head. And they don't have to anymore. They don't have to. I mean, it, you know, the, the degree to which... A full head of hair is part of, uh, you know, a kind of masculine identity. You are in a in a position where millions of people see, well, millions, uh, some number of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people no, see <laughs> see you every week uh, hosting the Jeopardy program, and you don't want to look like um, less than the full amount of fluff. The problem with our um, cultural obsession with hair and baldness is that, like, literally two out of three guys. The majority of men will experience some kind of male pattern baldness in their mid-30s, yeah. you know, by the time they're 35. Right. And then it just goes up from there. So it's not like it's a, a, a rare or severe or stigmatized problem. It shouldn't be. It happens to almost everybody. And it used to be if you wanted to get um, like an, a, a hair loss preventing medicine, you had to go to a doctor, right? Yeah. You'd have to get a prescription sometimes. You'd have to use a name brand. And uh, a lot of them aren't FDA approved. Yes. There's two FDA approved ones. And the great thing is Only you, two. you can get both of them uh, cheaper and easier with Keeps, uh, an online service for ordering, for prescribing and ordering, uh, and then continuing to receive uh, FDA-approved hair loss medications. Oh, so it still is a prescription in order to, to get the one of the two FDA-approved If you want ones. the prescribed one, yeah, you can get the prescription online. Um, you don't have to visit a doctor. Uh, you'll get a cheaper generic, so you're going to save a ton of money. And it's really important to do it when you think you might be in the early stages because, you know, the best thing you can do is maintain. I mean, there may be some regrowth, but... The great, the great thing is you can keep what you have now. I remember when you had less hair, and it's sort of phenomenal that it's worked. And look at your hair now. Uh, Seemed like well, you, you. you look like a little badger. That's what I asked for. Uh -huh. I went to my doctor, because uh, you know, this is before I knew about keeps, and I said, what do you have that will make me look like a little badger? He said, doctor, Mr. MD. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, what do you do? Go to keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com. 
slash omnibus. And if you use that code, you'll get your first month of treatment for free. You're saying K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus to get your first month free? K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. But she gives Charlemagne, as Holy Roman Emperor, the gift of Jesus's foreskin. Wow. In a box. And this is its return to history. It's return to history. Um, and it was... Um, Did she say where she got it? Uh, well, it was a gift from an angel. Oh, um, I see. Yeah, so... Uh, At some point, it gets from the party guest to an angel. An angel's been guarding it. And the angel gives it, instead of giving it to Charlemagne directly, gives it to Empress Irene and says, hey, would you do me a favor and get this to Charlemagne? Well, Empress Irene was responsible for Charlemagne being declared Holy Roman Emperor. She was trying, you know, she was... Because um, she's the ruler of the Roman, of the royal, the Eastern successor Roman Empire. And she's trying to, um, she's trying to break links with that, but also she couldn't be Holy Roman Emperor of the West herself because she was a female ruler. So oh. she played a big role in Charlemagne becoming Holy Roman Emperor. And then Charlemagne, not wanting to keep the special foreskin. Why not? I I think he saw that it was politic to give it as a gift to Pope Leo the Third. The Pope should have it. The You're Pope right. should have it. And the Pope You don't want to have a nicer foreskin than the Pope. See? The Pope put it inside of a gold cross, a jeweled gold cross, and hid it under the altar in a uh, in a Roman chapel called the Sancta Sanctorum. Like Doctor Strange, mm-hmm. and he doesn't. The does he Chapel not, of Saint Lawrence. Does he not let anybody know? Uh, it's there, and I think everybody knows, but no one can see it because it's see. in this. It's in this cross. It's what makes this church special. And I believe the cross also had the umbilical cord, which also had been saved, but no one. It's not really talked about the chain of custody, how the umbilical cord got there. When you were talking about the only place we could get Jesus' cells, I did think about the umbilical. Cord. Right. And apparently it was also One there. of the shepherds or the wise men made off with it? Yeah, it was kind of, you know, like put it into a necklace or something. Maybe somebody had a second alabaster box. There's a lot going on in this story. It um, And Charlemagne uh, very curiously later on uh, in his reign— also gave a gift of Jesus's foreskin to the Abbey of Chereau in France. Well, listen, like I'm all for finding a good staple party gift and giving it more than once, but you can't give Jesus's foreskin away to multiple people. Uh, Well, do we think he's vivisecting the foreskin? At a certain point during the Middle Ages, there were 31 different... um, Prepuses of uh, holy prepuses uh, in Europe, mostly in France. One has to be honest, mostly in France. You don't have uh, to be uh, honest. France should be proud of this. A few more in Mich- Italy. More Michelin starred restaurants and more holy prepuces than any other country in, in Europe. A lot of chapels in Europe had holy prepuses, and they all had kind of elaborate stories, mostly around the Crusades. They, the, someone brought it back or someone found it. It was in a, in a various different boxes of different It would be oils. funny if a lot of these stories were sincere, that a bunch of guys were sold a bunch of uh, prepuces 
in the Holy Land, yeah. and we're told by some cagey, uh, bizarre vendor, oh, uh, you like Jesus, right? Well, uh, this is his. Guess what? <laughs> what? What will you offer me? And this was the era where relics of the true cross, um, you know... Probably uh, for the same reason. Crusaders were bringing back to their European chapel these wonderful uh, relics that, that you know, and, and of course the story is that if you combined all the shards of the true cross, you could build... A you redwood? Know, yeah. You could build Noah's Ark. You could build a 10-story building. I wonder if the Crusaders were, they knew it was junk and they were just trying to pass it off to their starstruck family at home or if they got taken by merchants. I'm, I'm sure they got taken. I mean, it was a time of great credulity in the uh, in the, the relic market. And apparently of great ingenuity in the sales market. Well, yeah, right. I mean, you've got all these Crusaders walking around and you're like... I mean, there's a guy that's like, "Hey, you want these uh, these these porcelain birds? I can get these pig foreskins for cents on the dollar. I see an arbitrage opportunity." So there were a lot of um, there were a lot of foreskins flying around in ah. in uh, in in Antwerp in the year 1100. Baldwin I of Jerusalem actually gave Jesus's foreskin to. The, to a church in Antwerp, and that foreskin was seemed to actually bleed during mass. It was covered over with a with a linen. That's what I would do if I had bloody tissue on the altar during mass. And it it bled uh, enough that it was uh, that they built a chapel around it and formed a brotherhood of of foreskin knights. Brotherhood of the bleeding foreskin. There a lot of these foreskins were. I mean, miracles were attributed to it. Um, People would kiss it, uh, you know, they'd pull it out. And one of the ways um, to determine that it was a true, the true foreskin of Jesus was that they would find uh, like, a, I guess, a doctor and he would put it in his mouth to verify that it was in fact. That's you how know, you know you got a good doctor. That it tasted, Here's how I right? do biopsies. It's funny to me that nobody is at all squicked out by any of this, you know, at a time when you'd think people would be a little more. And maybe it's just our romanticized view of the past that they are they're squeamish or prim about sexuality, but everybody's just no, just stuffing foreskins in their mouths like there's no tomorrow. The thing is, I don't think you would stick your neighbor's foreskin in your mouth, but it's Jesus's foreskin that makes it special. And also, you know, transubstantiation is all about how Jesus's flesh, uh, you know, the the biscuit becomes the flesh. That's true, you're eating him anyway. So people are eating him all the time. This is like the real deal. I feel like I would be more hands-off. Like if you're hmm. like if you give me two foreskins and you're like one of these is Jesus's foreskins right. and one of these is just a regular foreskin. Medical waste. It's yeah, it's it's regular foreskin. Just somebody's it's got it from Cedar Sinai. Joe foreskin. Joe, John Q. Foreskin. Uh -huh. I think I would treat the Jesus one nicer. I'd be less likely to put it in my mouth, <laughs> run, you know, run around with it, right? Rub it on things, right? Uh, I'd like, I, I, I'd like, I'd put it on a nice shelf, and I wouldn't let people mess with it. I think during the time there was a certain sense. Wait a minute, there can't be thirty-one Jesus foreskins in France alone. Yeah, did people not travel enough to to count it up? No. So I think that all of this, like, put it in your mouth stuff, was we got to figure out which one of these is real. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody thought that none of them were real. There, it was just a question of like, well, this one's in Chart, and this one's in you know Lyon. What, where's the, where are the good foreskins at? Yeah, how are we going to figure it out? Well, the one that was kept in the chapel of St. Lawrence um, kind of had the uh, the right of primogeniture 
Um, right? It was foreskin number one. That's the, Charlemagne's. That was Charlemagne's that he gave to uh, Pope Leo. But unfortunately, R- Rome was sacked in 1527. Again. Uh, during, you know, the Protestant Reformation and all of the different, this was, this particular war uh, was the War of the League of Cognac, one of the lesser wars, <laughs> but Rome was sacked and the- the They were just in it for the duty-free shopping. <laughs> the gold cross- with the foreskin and the umbilical cord was looted by just some rando German soldier who, uh, he, he, for all we know, he kept the jeweled gold thing and just was like, what's this gross stuff inside? No, we know what happened to him. He only made it 50 kilometers from Rome before he was, uh, captured and imprisoned in the, in the Italian town of Calcutta. And it was only after he died that in his cell, they discovered the gold cross with the foreskin in it, and the Pope determined that the town of Calcutta now possessed Jesus's prepus uh, because God intended it, and it became a pilgrimage site for people for centuries to go to Calcutta to the church they had there, and um, and be there with the foreskin. Hey, I just thought of this. If you put a foreskin in your mouth, do you call that rinse prepus? Oh man. No? I wish I could end the show there, but there's more to gum. I just <laughs> I just looked it up and it's prepuce. Oh prepuce. Prepuce. Even better. Like before the color puce? Yeah. Prepuce. That's what I call primer when I'm painting something puce. Rather than prepus. I mean what you use prepus in your in your everyday conversation. How do you normally pronounce it? Prepus. I need to give me a situation. Give me a situation. Hey, don't forget to wash your prepuce. There you go. Hey, don't forget to scrub the old prepuce. Get that prepuce going. We're we're losing. Uh, we're shedding future links by the by the metric. Every ton time you at this say point. prepuce, <laughs> I mean that's a word that I literally don't like. I don't know, understand people making a big deal out of saying they don't like moist or whatever when there's words like. <laughs> prepuce out there right one would think you would you would uh in the hierarchy of words you didn't want to hear said over and over although we've had episodes weirdly mostly mine where we say uh weird weird words about the body over and over and people love it um a lot of the prepuces that were in various chapels in france did not survive, or France and, and Italy and, and Germany, did not survive the Reformation. I was thinking that. Because during the Refor- Reformation, that was precisely the kind of thing that uh, that wasn't kosher. <laughs> if you're a stern, strict-minded Calvinist, you do not think there should be bleeding foreskins on every altar. Right, and both Martin Luther and John Calvin wrote very skeptical and sarcastic uh, passages on relics and how unlikely they were and how dumb it was to believe in them. Did they mention the foreskin in particular? No, they talked mostly about the true cross. Um, but most of the, most of the 31 holy foreskins didn't make it past the reformation. Uh, and the ones that did, didn't make it through the French revolution. I was wondering if you were going to say revolution first, because again, does not it does not really 
it's not compatible with the Enlightenment. No, much as, less Marxism. As you are nationalizing the wealth of the church, you're probably going through a lot of those Catholic churches and taking the jeweled crowns and leaving the foreskin. Take the crown, leave the foreskin. Classic as they, saying, as they said. Um, but the one that was there in Calcutta survived, sur- sur- survived to th- and thrived. Um, in 1905, Pope Pius X uh, did a, you know, uh, commissioned an inventory of relics and churchly things, at which point it was determined that the gold cross that contained the holy uh, prepuce was a, um, was a 6th century cross but had originally been constructed to hold a piece of the true cross. So it was a repurposed relic holder. When somebody found a better souvenir. Right. And that uh, true cross then was separated from the holy foreskin, and it, unfortunately, I'm I'm sorry, not the true cross, but the gold-encrusted cross, was lost in 1945, as so many things were. World War II. Yes. The foreskin did not... Survive. No, the foreskin did. Oh, the, cross. the cross got lost, as happened so often with jeweled crosses at the end of World War II. The end of wars. The fact that the foreskin survived is really a point in the favor of its divinity, I guess. This thing right. seems indestructible. Right. It's it, it's bouncing along, and it is um, it's kept. It's it, it continues to be like a like a pilgrimage site in Calcutta, but um, the whole conversation around the pupus. Prepuce uh, starts to make the church itself very uncomfortable. Probably because of, again, modern ideas about delicacy around sexuality, right? Well, um, more to do with uh, the fact that if this was true, then it would not be in the infancy gospel of Thomas, not included in the Bible. Oh, I see. But would be a thing... That we um, infancy gospel sold separately. Yeah, that's right. There would actually be, there would actually be holy church fathers talking about it. And, and so in 1900, um, even and 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 maybe one of the things that precipitated this uh, this inventory of Pope Pius in 1900, Pope Leo the 13th uh, declared that or ruled that talking about the holy. Prepuce was grounds for excommunication. Wait, you tell me this now after we've been talking about it for an hour? Sorry. Am I now a Catholic excommunicant? Well, Just by virtue, of, is, is that still in effect? I think in 1900, the, the idea was don't talk about it as though it's part of Catholicism. We're talking about it as though it's. Podcasts were okay. Yes, yeah, something else. We're talking about it as though it's. Well, we're telling the historical story. I see. Um, what. What uh, what Leo wanted to assert was, we're not talking about the prepuce anymore, um, and let let me emphasize that by saying, talk about it, and you walk. But I feel like that's counterproductive. Like, don't think about Jesus' foreskin. What are you thinking about <laughs> right now? Don't think about Jesus' foreskin. Don't think about Jesus' foreskin. So we're now in a post-puce era. Post-puce. Now, the... Um, January 1st is still referred to at this point in the Catholic uh, liturgy, 
in the Catholic calendar as the octave of the nativity. Eighth day. Eighth day. And that eighth day is an eighth day for something. I mean, it's the, it is the day of Jesus' circumcision. And so it isn't until the Vatican II that they rename the uh, octave of the nativity and call it... Definitely not circumcised day. Not Holy Prepuce Day at all. Prepuce Non-Awareness Day. Um, so uh, the 1st of January was changed uh, within the liturgical year from being the uh, octave of the nativity and now is the day of the solemnity of Mary and also the day that Jesus was named. Ah. So no longer the 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 day of, of the holy slicing. Don't think about the foreskin. Look over here. And and strange. I mean, I, strange that Jesus had eight days where he wasn't called Jesus. He was called something else. Baby. We're going to, we're going to, we got to have a bris for baby. Hand me the baby. Oh, I am here to see the baby. Here, baby, is some gold. I bring this for the baby. To the unnamed baby. To the, na- to the, to the baby that will take seven more days to name. The artist shortly to be named Jesus. But in Calcutta, the foreskin itself um, remained an object of veneration until 1983, when uh, the priest of the chapel of Calcutta went to look for it in order to bring it out for the for the yearly for the annual thing celebration. Apparently, he kept it in his room in a closet, in a box not made of alabaster, some kind of shoe box. Uh, and it wasn't there. And in 1983, the uh, prepuce was stolen by unknown thieves. Person or persons unknown. Some people speculate it was the uh, the priest himself. Yeah, he had gambling debts. It might have been, um, in 1983, it might have been Pope John Paul who said, for the love of God, literally, let's just, let's ixnay the... There's no way he did that. He did himself. pray. You're thinking he did the heist himself? No, but maybe he sent a message he, like... You're picturing John Paul II slithering under a laser beam? Maybe not that, but like probably sent him a, sent a, sent him a fish wrapped in a newspaper and said, want to keep being a priest? Kill the, kill the foreskin. Get, well, who else could it have been could in it, 1983? In well, Italy? it could have been burglars. It could have been Muhammad Atta. Sophia Loren. It could have been Sophia Loren. It could have been somebody that was just like, you not, know what? Not I, me. I was nine. It could have been a billionaire. There weren't that many billionaires at the time. It could have been... Uh, could have been those guys that kidnapped J. Paul Getty's grandson. There it is. Or it could have been Aristotle Onassis who said, I want this over my fireplace. Whoever it was, in 1983, the last remaining uh, holy prepus disappeared forever or did it it could reemerge it could reemerge so we went from 31 prepuces and now we're down to zero down to zero 31 prepuces by the way that's 124 skin and now we got nothing <laughs> and that concludes the holy prepuce entry 594.js0503 certificate number 52348 in the omnibus uh, Futurelings, I'm sure none of you will have any comment on this entry whatsoever. And th- I mean, there are pro- many of our posthuman listeners are 
we never actually explained what a foreskin was. Mm. Oh, right. The the it's, the human. It's tricky. The human male sex organ, which is a proboscis, as a, a exoskeleton, a protuberance. It continues on past ne- where it's necessary. Um, but you know, some would argue it's a place. It's a. It has a. It had a sheath. It had a hood or a protective. What we don't want to hear is sheath. we don't want to get anti-circumcision no intactivists after us. Nope. I, uh, we we do not take a stand on whether or not this is important or not. But in 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 some religions, in, in Judaism in particular, the ritual slicing off of this tiny little thing. It's a sign of a covenant with God. It's a sign of a covenant with God. If you have strong opinions about circumcision, please send them to John Roderick at <laughs> <laughs> omnibusproject.com. Please send all your non-circumcision opinions to um, the omnibusproject at gmail.com. You can find us as at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, at Omnibus Project jointly. Uh, you can mail us um, relics of all kinds. Um, please send us all of your attempts to, to clone uh, to clone divine figures. Send us all your messianic stem cells to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I'm, right now I'm reading a note from Sparky. Typed on a typewriter and a not, 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 I think oh, not, nice. looks like not an electric either. Manual typewriter? Is this possible? Sparky was the one who sends us postcards from the road, but, you know, the past year has been tricky. He knows we mentioned once that the Soviets had experimented with a jet turbine-powered locomotive, but he says Union Pacific also had a successful gas turbine electric fleet known as GTELs. I did not know this. I didn't either. But he wants to tell us about a different train experiment, the Turbo Train. A train designed by an aerospace company uh, using aviation-grade materials, all aluminum car body, Pratt & Whitney turboprop aircraft engines. The turbines mechanically drove the wheels, tilting suspension for faster speeds. You know, the GTEL just looks like a classic mid-century era diesel locomotive. Apparently it just has a turbine engine in there. How cool. They were used in Canada. Oh, they actually did um, operate on some U.S. lines, he says. They could often only go like, they had to go slower just because of track conditions and grade crossings, even though in speed trials they could get up to 140 miles an hour. It's one of his very favorite train stories. And what did he send? Oh, he sent us a picture of it. He sent us two postcards and some kind of... uh, Oh, look at that. That's beautiful. The turbo train. Oh, wow. That's suitable for framing. The only new non-electrified intercity passenger train built in America in the past 15 years. Although this looks like it was printed sometime in the 1970s. Turbo train is the registered trademark of United Aircraft Corporation. This is fantastic. Apparently the GTEL was uh, pulled 10% of of, um, Union Pacific's freight at one point. Wow. But it used twice the fuel of a regular diesel locomotive. One of these trains, he says, which one? Oh, the turbo train still holds the world speed record for a gas turbine locomotive. It reached a speed of 170.8 miles per hour in New Jersey in 1967. 
Wow. And it is a very sexy train. We'll put pictures of this on the Patreon video feed. Speaking of which, you can always support the show if you feel like you do not have enough podcast content in your life about divine uh, genitalia. Uh, please support the show with your spare dimes and dollars by going to patreon.com slash omnibus project and checking out the remarkable perks and privileges available to those who donate. There is a GTEL on display in no less a place than Ogden, Utah. <laughs> That's the second reference to Ogden in this episode. I think I said Orem. Badermeinhof. Oh, you did say Orem. It's the Ogden of the South. Right. You can also find other like-minded futurelings by searching for that word on Facebook, uh, Discord, Reddit, and so forth. You'll have a good time uh, talking about mail trucks with them. I feel like I am going to have to do an omnibus on GTELs. That's funny. Sparky specifically says uh, he doesn't think there's enough about the turbo train to do a show, but oh, boy, he doesn't know how flimsy some of these shows are, does he? <laughs> You're going to eat those words, Sparky. Uh, futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.